Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Hey, guys, up in the um, sound booth, I'm going to show a quick video. Can you make sure that the audio on the PC is turned up? And before I do that, even, uh, if you were a visitor here, I want to welcome our visitors here. If you've been here, if this is your first time here or even your second or third, can you just kind of raise your hand, show everyone? I know we've already welcomed you guys. Hello, hello. So we have something we call the Oleg Shabbat afterwards. We all have a bite to eat out there. Please come and join. We'll, and uh, guys, greet our guests, get to know them. I'd love to meet you guys after the service. So as I said, before I get started, I kind of want to show you a quick video about, I think in 2000, was it 2010, Rabbi Nathan Joyner and I up at uh, Ruach Israel, we, uh, we put together a, a, a summer camp that really just changed the lives of a lot of people. Who've, uh, who've been there. And I kind of want to show a quick video of it before we start. Wait, that's not it. Can I skip something? Hey, you guys, can you, can you put that up for me? Second slide. The sonic Camp Orlador is amazing. Everybody here is incredible, and I think we need more people here. I wasn't going to come, and I'm glad I came, because it's amazing, and I definitely needed to hear all the things that you said. Yeah, Camp Lador was amazing. It was, it was something that we just did not have before then. It was a Messianic Jewish summer camp, a place where our kids could go and learn more about who they are in Messiah Yeshua and who, and who they are as Jews. You know, before I started doing Camp Lador, I hated the outdoors. I was overweight. I was like, you know, I didn't have much connection to my Judaism. And that camp just helped me so much. I began to love the outdoors. The next year, I lost like 80 pounds so I could be a better camper. <laughs> and I just found this deep connection with with my Judaism that I don't think I had before. So, you know, if you have kids, I, some, I know some people in our congregation have sent their kids to roll the door, and it's been an amazing experience for them. So if you have kids, you know, please come talk to me, because this is something really special and something that our children need. So that's my plug for roll the door. So it's good to be home again. So last week, I was in Chicago for the UMJC National Conference, and that, that was a lot of fun. It was good seeing old friends and getting to know better, like, the state of the Messianic Judaism a little bit better. But before I even got to that conference, I got to drive through the Chicago area on the way from the airport to the hotel. On the way, I caught a glimpse of this place. And I've seen some nice churches before. But I mean, like, look at this place. It's like, the, it's like the Wizard of Oz's palace. Like, am I in Illinois or the Magic Kingdom? Like, check out, I think that's our swimming pool. Jesus is like the lifeguard there. He's like, no running. So, I... I think that's their drinking fountain. Uh, so I'm going to confess. I had a little bit of building envy. So I'm driving by, and I'm like, what church could this possibly be? So I pass by the sign, and I'm shocked. Oh, these are the Mormons. I've heard of these guys. 
I was surprised they had churches outside of Utah. Because I mean, for me, the major selling point of the religion is you get to have as many wives as you want. So in a state where that's not allowed, I just I don't see the appeal. You know, I don't know a lot about Mormonism, but from what I've read, it seems to me that some of their beliefs are dubious. I'm not going to throw any more shade at them than I already have. You know, there are 15 million of them in America. They seem like nice folks. They must be doing something right if they can afford that building. But it got me thinking about why people believe what they do. Some of the Mormon church's teachings are pretty strange, but they at least seem to have their roots in scriptures, even if their branches are past Jupiter at this point. So not every, not every religion has that much grounding. Who here is familiar with the actor Wesley Snipes? Yeah, Demolition Man is the finest piece of cinema in the 20th century. you got to watch that. So, true story. Wesley Snipes and I share the same alma mater. We both went to SUNY Purchase. But while I was approached by groups like Hillel and Campus Crusade, you know, Wesley must have been talking to some different folks because he is a member of a religion called Nuwabianism. Now, listen, I respect all people's beliefs and cultures. But I have to call it like I see it, and this stuff is just dumb. So Nuwabianism is a mixture of like pseudo-ancient Egyptian religion mixed in with a hearty dose of UFO worship, sprinkled over a paramilitary compound in Georgia shaped like a big black pyramid, and it's all endorsed by the star White Man Can't Jump. So some, th- some, some fun things these guys believe in. After a child is born, it is important to bury the afterbirth so that Satan does not use it to make a clone of the recently born child. Now, they also believe abortion is wrong because aborted fetuses live in the sewer and they are being gathered and organized to take over the world. Uh, They believe people were once perfectly symmetrical and ambidextrous, but then a meteorite struck the earth and tilted its axis, causing handedness and shifting the heart off center in the chest, which shows a staggering ignorance of how the human body works. They also believe each of us has seven clones living in different parts of the world. Now, the world can only handle one of me. That's, they believe Homo sapiens are the result of cloning experiments done on Mars using Homo erectus. And I believe uh, Nikolai Tesla came from the planet Venus. Well, that one's plausible. And they also believe there exists an Illuminati, and they have nurtured a child and the devil's son who was born on June 6, 1966, in the Dakota House on 72nd Avenue in New York to Jackie Kennedy. And the Pope was present, and he performed necromantic ceremonies, and the child was raised by President Nick, Richard Nixon, and now lives in Belgium, where it is hooked up to a bodily, to a computer, called the Beast 3M, or 3666. I can't make this stuff up. I'm not funny enough. But all these strange beliefs got me thinking hard about my own. And we can sit here and laugh at all the foolishness these guys believe, but what makes our religion better than theirs? I mean, we got a book, so does Scientology. Right? Remember, the Bible is a book that contains talking donkeys, burning bushes, the Red Sea parting, people turning into pillars of salt, and that's just the first few chapters. Is this any less weird than, you know, whatever John Travolta is doing these days? So today, I want to talk about our whys. We know what we believe, but do we ever stop and think about why we believe it? So I'm a second-generation Messianic Jew. I grew up in a faith household. There was never a time in my life where I remember not believing in God. So I was immersed at the age of 11. So if you got in a time machine and asked 11-year-old me why I believed that Yeshua was my Messiah, first I would ask you where you got that sweet time machine. 
And second, I, I would have no idea how to begin answering that question. But in the years since, I have had time to think about that question, and I think I have a better answer now. I may be a second-generation Messianic Jew, but I am also born, bred, and raised in New Englander. I have drank many a cheerless mug of cider on grim winter's night during a bitter storm. This is not the Bible Belt here. Connecticut, unfortunately, is one of the least religious states in America. So the spiritual soil in New England is the same as its actual soil. It's stony. It's hard to plant in. You can't just throw some seeds on it like Johnny Appleseed and expect things to just pop up. You have to water it and nurture it. You have to give it reasons to grow. You know, every day I drive through the Yale campus to get to work, and if you were to take the average Yale student and, you know, explain to him that you believe in the Bible because the Spirit has convicted you of the truth, you know, they're not going to be impressed. You know, it's legitimate, but it's not going to convince anyone who hasn't had the same experience as you. So what people at Yale, in, what people in Connecticut, what people in this spiritually dark part of the country need is a reason to believe. They need a why that they can understand. So today, I'm going to share with you what I hope is a more compelling apologetic argument for the why of what I believe. So let's jump in. I mentioned Yale students. There's one thing that Yale students can respect. It's, it's facts. So let's talk some facts. All right, I need some audience participation here. I got some hard questions for you. Ready? Who was the first president of the United States? Ooh, you guys are smart. Who, okay, here's hard one. Who invented the airplane? Right, brothers, all right. Now, that one's on the back of a license plate somewhere, so North Carolina thing. How long is a yard? You guys got small yards. Mine's huge. I can play football on it. Yeah, but you're right. No. So how, no, you're right. 36 inches. How do you guys know that stuff's true? Now, you could probably figure out the yard thing by yourself, but the other stuff you learn from books. I imagine. So what is it about your school textbooks that make them a credible source? Now, for example, why do you believe that it's accurate when it tells you that George Washington was the first president? That's why it seems a matter of evidence, right? So the question is, what is the evidence that would make the Bible a credible source? I can read a book that tells me that King Tutankhamun was the pharaoh of Egypt, and I will believe it because they found his tomb with all this evidence of his reign. At the same time, I can read the Epic of Gilgamesh that tells me that King Gilgamesh of Ur reigned for 45,000 years. Now, probably not going to take it too seriously. Yes, the account is written in a book, just like George Washington's presidency, but other than that one book, there is nothing else out there to confirm that claim. And that, that's the major problem with the Bible, or at least the Torah. It's one of the oldest books ever written. And its accounts are of events that took place so long ago that writing had barely been invented at the time. Almost every bit of evidence of that world has crumbled into dust by this point. You know, a few years ago I visited Israel, and I was like, I was really excited to see the Bible come alive. But every place we visited was just like a pile of rocks. Practically everything we know about this world at that time is, you know, comes from the Bible alone, and everything is just turned into dust at this point. So the Bible is one of the only documents from that time that has survived so long. So the Bible falls into the same problem as a historical document as the Epic of Gilgamesh. There are no other books to corroborate this story, and all the physical evidence is long gone. 
And I'm not just talking about evidence of the really old stuff like the Garden of Eden or the Great Flood. Do you realize that outside the Bible, there was no evidence that King David even existed? Or that the Israelites were even a nation? Or that the Jews had ever been to Egypt as slaves? So you ever heard the expression, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence? It means that just because you can't find your keys doesn't mean they don't exist. You just got to keep looking for them. But clever wordplay or not, it's pretty disappointing to know that we can't really prove anything happened before page 600 of the book. Or can we? So remember what I said about King David? So in 1993, an ancient mound called Tel Dan in the north of Israel, they found words carved into a chunk of basalt that were translated as House of David and King of Israel, proving that he was more than just a legend. And in 1990, an Egyptologist translated hieroglyphics to identify figures carved into a 3,500-year-old temple wall that translated the word Israelites. And the word under them read, Israel is laid waste. See, these don't sound like a big deal to us because we've always known these things to be true. But to a skeptic, it's proof that the Bible isn't just a collection of fairy tales. If King David and the Jews in Egypt were real, what else is the Bible telling the truth about? You know, of course, this stuff isn't that difficult to believe, but what about all the supernatural events that occur in the Bible? Is there any evidence that those things happened? So who knows the story of Jericho? Yeah, we should all know this story by now. This is the one where the Israelites were marching around the walls of this great city, blowing shofars, and God caused these mighty walls to collapse. You know, so you know, maybe that's just a legend. Maybe they're just throwing rocks at it until it fell down. Now, first of all, the Israel army had never laid siege to a city before in their life. They had no idea. You know how hard it is to lay siege to a city? What would you do? I mean, how would you do it? I don't know. I just stand there like, could you guys come out and fight us now? You know, it's hard work. You know, they had no idea how to do it. And even if they did, they didn't have any siege equipment to do it with, like battering rams and trebuchets and stuff. There are no trees in the desert. But what, an archaeologist found the ruins of the city of Jericho. Not only did they find that the walls had been completely shattered, but the walls had fallen outwards. In the normal siege situation, when a wall is being attacked, it crumbles in, you know, away from the pressure of the attack. The walls of Jericho look more like they were hit with an earthquake than with battering rams, which sounds a lot to me like what's described in the Bible. So if you've heard of Jericho, you must have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The Bible tells how God punished the cities of the plain for their wickedness by raining fire and brimstone down from heaven and burning the cities to ash. So the cities of the plain were considered a myth by non-believers for years until about the 1970s when archaeologists actually discovered their ruins. But the really crazy thing wasn't that they found the cities, but what they found inside of them. All throughout the ruins, they found these golf ball-sized pellets of petrified sulfur. Anyone know what sulfur is? Another word for brimstone. The city showed evidence they had been burned by a fire so hot it actually melted the stones. They were able to trace the way the fire moved as well. You know, most cases of a city being destroyed by fire, fire spreads across burning buildings from the bottom up. But this city had been burned from the top down. It's as if the fire had fallen from the sky and started on the roofs. The archaeologists said it looked like the city had been destroyed by an erupting volcano, but there were no volcanoes within hundreds of miles of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you've probably 
You've seen this picture before. Anyone know what that is? It's an aerial photo photograph of a boat-shaped object on top of Mount Ararat in Turkey. And in the mountain where the Bible tells us that Noah landed his ark. Now, I first saw these pictures years ago. There was this problem with the Turkish government letting archaeologists study the thing to confirm its nature. So since then, it's, uh, it's been cleared up the problem and it's official. That's a boat on top of the mountain. It's made of petrified wood. It's too old to be a hoax. It's got ribs, water tanks, support structures, everything you expect an ark to have. And when the scientists measured it, they found it was 550 feet long. Not only is that two football fields in length, it translates into 600 cubits, which is the exact length that God commanded Noah to build the ark in the Bible. That's a big hoax if it's a hoax, I'm telling you that. One last thing. You know what that is? It's a wheel from 18th century, sorry, 18th, 18th dynasty Egyptian chariot found at the bottom of the Red Sea, along with the remains of human and horse skeletons. How did an Egyptian army get there? So I just gave you a few archaeological reasons why the Bible is more than just a collection of stories like the tales of King Arthur. But you can't really use archaeology to explain the Bible because the Bible isn't a history book. It's a religious text. It's a story of how God relates and communicates to us. And for a good portion of the Bible, God speaks to us through a series of prophets. So a prophet, who is a prophet? So a prophet is someone who receives a message from God and speaks as an advocate for the Lord. So while someone like Noah spoke to God, he wasn't a prophet because he didn't advocate for God. You know, and then like, you know, someone like Miss Cleo claims to be able to see the future. You know, she probably isn't getting that inspiration from the Lord. You know what I mean? Okay. Let's talk about, let's talk about prophecy. I need, a, I need a volunteer. Someone in the front row. Paul. All right, you can stay there. I got a coin here. I need you to call it. Heads or tails? Paul just accurately predicted the future. Is he a prophet now? No, of course not. He didn't predict the future. He just guessed right. A lot of people who have read the prophecies of the Bible are skeptical about them. They, they try to just pass them off as lucky guesses. So if Paul and I kept playing the coin toss game, he probably guessed right about 50% of the time. Now, as far as odds go, 50% isn't bad. It's not so bad to be right half the time. I've been right once since I got married. So, now, coin tosses are pretty simple to guess. There's only two, there's only two possibilities. So let's, let's try some dice this time. You know, so much gambling going on in the shul today. So let's pretend that there was someone out there who claimed he could accurately predict every toss of the dice. So we start doing it. After 100 throws, he has gotten 50 of the throws right. Now, statistically, that is impressive because there are 11 possible numbers that come up instead of two. But would you say... That someone who was dead wrong half the time was someone who could accurately predict the future? No? That's pretty sad, because every day we put our faith in people who claim to be able to predict the future and who are wrong way more than 50% of the time. Yeah. Who in the last two weeks has, protected, has checked the weather? Not my weather picture. It's gone. All right. It's okay. Even with all their Doppler radar, satellite information, sophisticated computer graphing, the weatherman on TV is only right about 24% of the time. So you could, if you use this coin to predict the weather, you get better results than he would. So the same holds true for every kind. There we go. 
same holds true for every kind of modern-day prophet out there, be they weathermen, stockbrokers, sportscasters. Even though they are experts in their fields and they have every technological advantage, the future is too difficult to predict, much beyond 50-50. But what if there was someone who could accurately predict the future, down to minor details, 100% of the time? Would you say that he was making lucky guesses? Good guesswork will make you right about 10% of the time, if you're very lucky. Even extremely educated guessing only yields 50-50 results. Does anyone know how many separate prophecies there are in the Bible? About 1,000, approximately. There are about 800 in the Old Testament, 200 in the New. Of those 1,000, how many have come to pass exactly as predicted? Just about all of them with the exception of some stuff we're waiting on in the book of Revelation. The accuracy of the Bible far, far surpasses any other prophetic source. The prophets of the Bible were correct 100% of the time. If they were wrong, even once, they were considered false prophets, and they were stoned. Their prophecies predated the events, so there was no cheating. You know, they were precise enough so that they were not vague, which is more than what someone like Nostradamus could say. And they described enough events that were beyond human ability to calculate or manipulate. In other words, these prophets did things that no man could without help from God. So the historical prophecies are really interesting. But for me, even more convincing are the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Of the 800 prophecies of the Old Testament, 365 of them are about a coming Messiah. Many of them concern things that were completely beyond human control, such as time, place, circumstances of his birth, circumstances of his death, people's reactions to him, uh, the piercing of his side, the method of his burial, his ensuing resurrection. Of those prophecies, 300 out of 300 were fulfilled by Yeshua. There's your 100% accuracy right there. Now, if you don't think that's a big deal, I'm going to prove to you that it is. With math! No, it's okay, it's cool. So in 1976, a mathematician named Peter Stoner actually calculated the odds of someone fulfilling all the Messianic prophecies by pure coincidence. So he calculated that if you take just eight of those 300 prophecies, the odds of one man fulfilling all eight of them by pure chance is one in 100. Shoot, that was going to be dramatic, too. Thank you, thank you, PowerPoint. One in 100... Trillion. To illustrate that, if we were to take 100 trillion of these coins and lay them on the face of Texas, the pile would be two feet deep. That's Texas. That's a big state. So now imagine we mark one of these silver dollars with a little X. We get into a helicopter and we drop it over a random part of the state. Now let's blindfold a man, let him travel as far as he wants, and let him pick just one coin. What chance would he have of picking the right one? about the same chance as that the prophets would have of writing just eight of these prophecies and having them come true for one man. Now, if we up that number to 48 prophecies, the odds turn to a staggering 10 to the 157th power. Now it becomes hard to illustrate because there isn't enough room in like the solar system for that many coins. And that's just 48 prophecies. There are 365 in total, all of which are perfectly fulfilled in Yeshua. That is why he is the number one reason I believe the Bible to be true. The way that Yeshua fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament should be enough to convince anyone that he is the Messiah, but that would probably 
I would actually require people to, you know, like read the Bible. So if you haven't, then you're probably not going to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. But it's not like people don't believe he existed at all, like, you know, like Santa Claus. Few people have ever tried to deny the actual existence of Yeshua. He, he's just too well documented. They believe he was real, but that he couldn't have been the Messiah or have done the things that the Bible said he did. But when you look at it logically, there really are only four possibilities when it comes to the story of Yeshua. He was either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or the Lord. I didn't make this up. You're all familiar with the famous author C.S. Lewis. He once did a radio interview with the BBC where he had this to say. I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level of a man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. This argument is called Lewis's Trilemma, sometimes called the mad, bad, or God argument. Basically saying, if you don't believe Yeshua is who he says he is, then you must be affirming one of these other alternatives. So let's look at the first one. Uh, Maybe Yeshua was a liar. He was a normal guy who knew that he was a normal guy, who deliberately decided to start his own religion based around himself as God. He went around deceiving people into thinking he was the Messiah. He used trickery to make people believe he could perform miracles, you know, that sort of thing. His motivation may have even been good. He may have really believed the things he taught and figured that people thought he was the Messiah, then they would be more likely to listen to him. But Yeshua as a liar isn't the position that many people even his detractors take seriously. Even hardcore atheists, while denying his deity, agree that Yeshua was a great moral teacher. But those statements, you know, they really contradict each other. Yeshua's morality can never be taken into question. The caliber of his life was such that he could go into a crowd of his enemies and ask, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And he was met by silence. Even though the people he addressed would have loved to have pointed out a flaw in his character. They loved it. Guys like John and Peter and Paul, who believed that sin was universal, who were very well-versed in the law and morality and were not afraid to call people out, they all claimed that Yeshua lived a life without sin. Even Pilate. Pilate, he had one job. He had one job. He had to find something to punish Yeshua for. And even he couldn't find a flaw in him. Yeshua could hardly be the great moral teacher that we know he is if on the most crucial point of his teaching, his identity, if he was a deliberate liar. A liar could not have taught as Yeshua taught or lived the kind of life he lived. And I don't believe a liar, I never won't believe for a second that a liar would die the kind of death Yeshua died to protect something he knew to be untrue. So maybe Yeshua wasn't a liar. Maybe he was a lunatic. Gone. There we go. Those who say this, so those who say this believe that Yeshua was an ordinary man 
who's so self-deluded that he actually believed that he was the son of God and he could perform miracles. What the heck? This, it's gone mad. All right, so those who say this really believe that Yeshua was an ordinary man who was so self-deluded that he actually really believed that he was the son of God and he could perform miracles. That's not, that's not, that's not too uncommon. I used to see this homeless guy around on the streets who said he was Jesus. You know, he hung like, um, he had like a flashlight that he hung around his chest underneath his shirt. So it looked like his heart was glowing. And he went around like just like touching flowers and stuff. Actually, I think he thought he was E.T. Yeah. So either way, I, I, always, I always gave that guy change because, you know, what if? <laughs> but no one really took that guy seriously because despite of the things he said, his behavior always gave away that he was insane. Mentally ill people tend to act, you know, mentally ill. You can't hide that kind of crazy for long. So Yeshua was constantly surrounded by people. And not one of them ever saw him speaking or acting abnormal or imbalanced. What we find instead is a man whose teaching inspired the devotion of thousands in his lifetime and billions after his death. His personal charisma was so great that men would die for him, who showed the greatest composure when faced with incredible pressure. So that's not crazy. I've seen crazy, but I don't care how crazy you are. You're not going to be able to walk on water, no matter how much you want to. I had a fun video for that. Where did it go? There we go. Look at that guy. He's trying. He's trying so hard. So maybe Yeshua never walked on water at all. Maybe all those stories surrounding him were just legends. Maybe Yeshua was a real teacher, but his followers got a little overzealous. And after his death, they started making up all these stories surrounding him to puff up his reputation including claims that he was the Messiah. This sounds like a plausible explanation. So you realize that, you know, all the archaeological evidence we were talking about before effectively refutes this theory. The miracles of Yeshua were seen by thousands of reliable witnesses, including important political, military, and religious leaders, as well as respected historians and scholars. There are numerous accounts besides the Gospels that talk about the miracles of Yeshua, including his resurrection. Also, you have to remember that there is archaeological evidence that the Gospels were all written and circulated no later than the year 70 AD. That's less than 40 years after his death and resurrection. Imagine if someone today were to write a biography about John F. Kennedy, claiming that he was the son of God, and he performed miracles, and he raised, the de- raised from the dead after his assassination. Be a laughingstock. Be refuted immediately, because there are still too many people around who knew him. But when the Gospels came out, the people who knew Yeshua and who had witnessed his miracles all supported the books instead. So the only alternative left is that Yeshua was the Messiah and that the Gospels are the truth. And you can't believe in Yeshua without believing in the rest of the Bible. Yeshua only spoke the real truth and he vouched for the rest of this book. Even without the rest of the evidence backing it up, Yeshua's word It's good enough for me. That's my why. There are so many people out there who say they cannot believe because they can't believe what they can't see. But if we were to look a little closer, they'd find that the truth is there for them to find. God does not ask for blind faith. He just needs us to open our eyes a little bit wider. Shabbat shalom, everyone.